Help support the Candid Frame in bringing you awesome conversations with great photographers. You can do this by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. That modest donation helps us to bring a quality show to you every week. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. This is Ebody and X, and this is the candid frame. Since the invention of the brownie, the camera has been an ever present device in our lives. It's been there for weddings, births, first steps, baptisms, bar mitzvahs, and endless parties. They have been there to memorialize those moments of our lives that are all too fleeting. Yet some photographers have used the camera to delve deeper into what it means to be a family and to be human. These photographers have moved beyond idealized imagery and have been brave enough to explore issues of abuse, addiction, and poverty. Photographer Melissa Spitz's documentation of her mother's lifelong struggle with mental illness is one such work. The images are honest, poignant, and sometimes very painful to look at. And though some have been quick to describe them as exploitive, they bring attention to an issue that is all too often relegated to secrecy and shame. If you've ever lived with a loved one with mental illness, you'll see a lot that's familiar in these images. And if you haven't, I hope that the photographs and this conversation provide you insight and a bit of compassion for those who face this challenge every day. Well, I'm really excited to, to, to talk to you about your work and your project. Oh, thank you. You know, with mental health issues, even even in today's age, with so much awareness, there's so much misunderstanding, shame, isolation that occurs, not only to the people who suffer from mental illness, but the family and friends of them. And so when I saw the work and I saw how, how intimate it was and how personal it was, um, I was really moved by it. And I really wanted to have a chance to talk to you about it. So thank you for, for making time uh, for me. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I do. I totally agree. I, when I was a student, I kept seeing people make work about, I don't, it wasn't about mental illness, but they'd tack up these images on the wall and say, this is someone who's mentally ill. And normally it yeah. wound up being like a picture of a homeless person taken with a long lens from mm-hmm. across the street, you know, very intro to photo kind of, I'm scared to take portraits type of work. And I remember feeling like frustrated, like you can't say that that's what mental illness looks like. Like yeah. you can't just throw that word on it. And it, and it is a facet of what mental illness looks like, but I just felt, I remember I was like, that's not what I've experienced at least in my world. So I wanted to really, when I had an uh, opportunity to photograph something private, I was just like, okay, I'll, I'll finally do this and see what happens. So, yeah. but as you know, you've, you've experienced your mother suffering from mental illness throughout your life. And from what I read, she was first institutionalized when you were seven years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So seven. leading up to that, did you have a sense that this was normal? And when did you start having that understanding that this may not be what everybody else's household is experiencing? Well, yeah. So she was, she was very nervous as a kid. I remember being in the car and her 
asking my brother, like, a left turn here, right? Like, she needed reassurance in my brother, who was six years older than me. So back to when I'm, like, you know, three and my brother's eight or nine, my brother was, was saying things like, no, you make a left turn here, Mom. You make a right turn there. Right? Mm-hmm. So there were these little things. But I was so young when she was institutionalized. I just remember this happening I actually really didn't remember it happening. And then after I spoke with a lot of friends and families, and now that I'm 29, I've kind of put the pieces together finally. But it was really strange. When I first started talking about all of this, I thought I was six. I was sure I was six. And then it's weird how your brain protects you and wants you to think you were younger so you maybe don't remember things. Um, But yeah, it really wasn't until that moment that I that she was taken away by the state of Washington. We were in Seattle that I was like, and I had to go stay with friends that I was like, whoa, something's not right here. Like not everyone's mom is going away for 72 hours. And we have to go visit her at this hospital. And, and, and then just as time kept going, there were just more and more situations where I remember I'd look at our family portrait and I'd be like, what's, that photo on the wall does not, it's the complete opposite of what is happening. Yeah. And I think everybody experiences that to some degree, yeah. looking at a, their own family portrait. So your mom was taking what's called a 5150 in which a person is either a risk to themselves or to someone else. And, and then mm-hmm. they're put on a hold. In this, this case, it was a 72-hour hold, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that happened a lot. My mom's had a lot of those holds where it's almost gotten to the point where she, she would start saying, oh, I'm going to kill myself. And I'd say, mom, you know what they're going to do if you say that. Mm-hmm. And then she'd kind of, cause she hated, she would hate being there. Once she was there, she was like, I need my cigarettes. I need my makeup. I need all of this stuff. And I would say, well, mom, you can't just, you can't just, it, it just, um, she's had those holds so many times. I, I couldn't even count at this yeah. point, which is kind of, what I want, which is something I do like want to touch on because I feel like this over diagnosis, this, this attention seeking behavior, like there are things that my mom does that are very um, in line with that. Yeah. So it's, it's the first time she went, it was heartbreaking. Now, if she were to call me and say she was in there, I, I really wouldn't be surprised. So it's kind of a weird world. And what was she diagnosed with? She's been diagnosed with everything. I mean, it's been bipolar disorder. It's been paranoid schizophrenia. At one point, it was um, dissociative identity disorder, which I found very wrong and inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And it's just hard. So people lately have been like, what's her diagnosis? And I've just tried to say, look, my mom's mentally ill. Because I think that in some circumstances, putting a diagnosis on it can make things worse. And in the case of my mom, who likes to print things off from WebMD and read a lot. I just think that it's best to just keep it as she's mentally ill. She has a lot of mental and physical ailments and we've done our best as a family to work around them and make yeah, it comfortable for her. <laughs> that's one of the, the, the challenges of dealing with a family, family member with mental illness is that people think that there's a really hard science to it. And there's mm-hmm. so much about, you know, assessment in terms of asking questions, trying to find out about history. And then sometimes it's trying various medications to mm-hmm. try and see if this helps. And then if it doesn't, that means that the diagnosis may not be spot on. Mm-hmm. And 
it can be crazy making, for lack yeah. of a better word, in terms of a family exactly. member who's trying to put a finger on what's exactly happening to my loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you get thrust into it, there's so much you don't know. And you're mm-hmm. so reliant on these professionals to try and give you a definitive answer. And the, th- and the fact is, there's rarely a definitive answer for yeah. what's happening with someone facing mental illness. And especially as a kid, you know, you know, how do you make sense of all that? Yeah, as a kid, I, I mean, I'm still, I still feel like I'm very like young. I turned 30 in November, and I still feel like just now in my life, I'm like, oh, I'm an adult. Like now, now I'm an adult. And when I look back. I mean, I was just so confused. I think I was just really angry. I remember the first time she was institutionalized, she was she was having schizophrenic episodes. She was claiming there were people in our house, that mm. people were coming to kill us. She was telling me to be quiet, like I needed to hide. Like it was a very scary thing for me. And I grew up my whole life being really paranoid about people breaking into my house and people and then I there was like one day where it just kind of like clicked. I was like, oh, no wonder I'm paranoid about that. Like my mom <laughs> did all of this stuff as a kid and no one came and said, hey, your mom had a mental break mm. that everything she told you wasn't real. Like no one ever said that to me. So I, you know, I thought she went away. And as a seven year old, I think I just kept thinking, yeah, like maybe people were really trying to, to kill us that one day. And so it's just these weird things that now that I'm older, I'm like, you know, burglaries and things like that happen but the idea of like you know a serial killer movie someone coming in like that just doesn't really happen like and you can't live your life thinking that it would and so those types of things I think as a kid I was just confused and I was angry and I was very attention seeking um you know I was like an ADHD kid and I think in reality that was just me needing somebody to discipline me and give me structure and routine um, so I was, as a kid, I think I, I was happy, but I was just kind of confused and didn't know what the situation was. Did at any point you blame yourself for what was happening? Um, some, I mean, I think that's something that's happened now more as I get older. Now that I, I see my friends starting to have children and knowing that my mom was, you know, 28 years old when she had me and that she had already had another kid prior to that and, or maybe she was 30, she was in her early 30s. I just think now that I see other friends of mine going through postpartum and things like that, mm. I do I do think like, wow, that probably wasn't easy for my mom to have mental issues and then me to come along and need all of this stuff. But I, I've started therapy young enough to really never really feel like it was my fault. Like, because it's not, I was just thrown into this crazy situation and there's kids that are thrown into such worse situations I've always kind of I always try and keep the perspective wide that you know I grew up with a roof over my head with food in my mouth with grandparents and people that did love me my mom I does love me she just has a strange way of showing it so yeah I don't think I ever only now do I start to really worry about what it was like for her to just be pregnant and go through all of that yeah, because I was—I've been, you know, doing some therapy myself, and it was interesting for me to think about some issues that happened to me when I was five years old, and that somehow my rationalization for what happened there was that I did something. Yeah, and that I—and that basically was what I created in order to sort of survive what I went through, mm-hmm. and then I realized that I've been 
living based on the assumption of a five-year-old for decades. Yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, you know, it's just like, it, it was what I chose to think back then in order to get through it, but I never fully grasped that 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 whole idea. It's like, I'm, you know, living my life according to a five-year-old's yeah. understanding, and that's crazy. Yeah. But it, you know, but it, it's really, yeah. when you're dealing with such um, unpredictable, unsafe circumstances, as, as a kid, you just figure out some way of doing it, especially when you don't have an adult there to be able to say, yeah. this is what's happening. It's not your fault. You'll be okay. Yeah. And, and all those things. So it's, it's, and it's understandable. And I, think, I think that's why I would be so loud and ah, like, yeah. but it's interesting what your brain does to protect you from trauma, the way that we, we do these weird things to just figure out how to deal and cope. Yeah. So when you began to photograph your mother, it was part of a school assignment. Tell, tell us about that. Um, so I was a so, I was a somewhere between a sophomore and a junior at the University of Missouri. I really wasn't that great of a student, and my photo teacher gave me the assignment to do to photograph something private. And Joe Johnson's an amazing professor. He's really fantastic photographer as well. Um, and Joe said, photograph something private. And I had done a really poor project before about like my friends partying that is just like embarrassing to even <laughs> think that I put those photos up on the wall at one point in time. And so I, I went home and I just photographed all of my mom's things. You know, I was, it's very, it's interesting. We all have the same progression. I think photographers, like we'll start with the things, we'll exhaust all the things and then maybe we'll do a portrait from far away. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we'll ask him to sit down. And then we start, like, and it just kind of snowballs. So it all started with just all of her things and then one portrait. And I took that back to class. And my professor was just like, what is this? Who is this? And I was like, that's my mom. And he was like, you guys don't have a good relationship, do you? And, like, I didn't even... I was, mm. I thought he was like a wizard that he like could read that yeah. from the photographs because it, I was just so close to it then. And I was like, yeah, we have a really bad relationship. And then he started showing me all of this work, like Nan Golden's The Ballad and Larry Sultan's Pictures from Home, mm -hmm. um, Tierney Gearn's The Mother Project, just work after work after work about people in their families. And I just kind of hit the ground running after that. I was like, I can't. Even though I had been kind of a poor student and I was struggling in school, it was like photo, all of a sudden everything made sense. I got to make photos. I got to go to school. I got to, I, I can do this. Like it was a really cathartic, I mean, I was, my dad was just in town and we were talking about how crazy the whole thing has been, but it just, ever since that moment, I just didn't stop photographing and that was nine years ago wow were you still living with your mother at that point or had you left i was living at college but i still had a room in her house and yeah i was spending summers with her then i would winter breaks with her then i when i went home i would i'd go home for the weekend and her bedroom her bedroom was right above mine which i took the photo of her like smoking in bed and i would always worry that you know she's going to set the house on fire yeah. and below her it was just a kind of crazy, there was a lot of chaos in those first five years of photographing, for sure. Did you, do you think, well, did it help you to have that separation and to return back to photograph her as opposed to still being underneath the same roof? 110%. Huh. To be able to 
leave and come back and into process and and to physically put the camera up in front of my face as like the shield walking into her house like it was like I remember times like okay I've got my armor on like I'm in the I'm in the driveway I'm gonna turn the car off I'm gonna put my camera around my neck and I'm gonna go unlock the front door and it was and then it helped so much to if things went totally bad you know, I used to have to go sleep on friends' couches all the time and be like, sorry, man, my mom freaked out. Like, can I stay with you? But it felt so good to be able to be like, nope, I'm just driving back to school. Like, I have class on Monday. I'm not even going to pick up my camera and empty the card until I get to the photo classroom. Like, I'm just going to let it be. Yeah. So it it is it, really amazing when I think about what photography and art, I'm just, like, very thankful that I found it and that it was something so special for me yeah i can completely understand how that, that camera allowed you to gird yourself up because it's like you put the key in the door and you don't know what's going to be behind the door you don't know which mother you're going to have and then having the camera at the ready really is a way of just protecting yourself mm-hmm. uh, but still it's it's a difficult thing to face you know, especially if your mom is in crisis, not maybe not to the point where she needs to be institutionalized, but, you know, she's having an episode. So how how difficult was was it for you to turn the camera on your mother during such moments? There's still so there's still times that I don't photograph her or that I have photographed her and I don't show the pictures because I just feel like it there are these moments of intensity that are too much. Um, And it comes across in, er I was taking early video when we were fighting. I would turn this camera Mm. on and kind of leave it in the corner of the room. And some of those I can't even, I don't even, I'm like, why did I even make this? I want to, I want to destroy it. So initially it was really easy. Like it didn't, it didn't bother me. I was just like, whatever, I'll, I'll photograph and I'll, I'll photograph it all. But then when I look at it on my computer is when I really kind of make the call to be like, no, that's, that's too much. Um, but it's, there was never, she, I also look back at my family photos and she's always telling me to photograph her as a kid. Like there's these pictures of there, I'm so short. You can tell that the composition's off of my mom telling me to hold the camera and photograph her. Mm-hmm. So she always has loved being the center of attention. She, she was absolutely strikingly gorgeous. And my dad would take her on these vacations and always photograph her in these very beautiful, you know, gardens. And so I think she just loves being in front of the camera. Like it never it never felt like I was doing anything wrong by taking her portrait. Yeah. What I like about your pictures is that you photograph the quiet moments, um, the small details, as you mentioned earlier, because it doesn't mean, having someone with mental illness doesn't mean that they're in crisis every single moment of the day. There's a lot of time where they're, they're, they're functioning, they're going through the day, they're managing, and then they have these moments where it's just like it is, you know, I, I call it, you know, catching a, catching the the crazy train you know <laughs> where it's just like full bore and you don't yeah. know what to expect but so much of it is just like fairly relatively normal and yeah. it's not normal but it's relatively normal yeah. um when did you realize that it was important to document those moments as well as the more dramatic ones well i think back to like the beginning of the project and seeing somebody photograph someone homeless and say like this is mental illness 
I thought those quiet moments were important from the very beginning because I knew, you know, from Grey Gardens and these these things we have of mentally ill women, like everyone was expecting to see the hysterical woman. Everyone wanted to see her. And then when I would show these kind of quieter moments or that, you know, she was reading a book in her bed or like recited some Robert Frost poem or did something that was very just surprising people would be like what what like you're the same and that's why I love to really I think sequencing and editing is where you know you really hit the ball out of the park when I can take a really quiet moment and juxtapose it next to these chaotic moments and you know and then she's still very glamorous and I think it's all kind of I always look for a moment that is like that is not what you expect of the situation Um, people would always say her house is so clean. It's so put together. And like, that Mm. was something that I thought was so poignant, but then, you know, you open up one door and the hoarding is all (laughs) confined. So we appear neat and tidy, but it's still, and so just these kind of, I've just always been interested in, in kind of not tricking a viewer, but just finding the things that you wouldn't expect in all of my work. Your mother is very self-aware which I think would surprise people because it's mental illness, but she, she very much is. She's very conscious of how she looks in front of the camera. But that can be a real challenge for a photographer because you want to capture something genuine. You don't want to capture something that's posed or is just put out there strictly for the camera. So tell us about recognizing when your moments, moments when your mom is really just being herself and other moments where she's trying to present something specifically for the camera. For sure. That's um, that was my biggest like worry and conflict with the work that I spoke about with my teachers a lot was like, you know, I'm creating this stage and my mom's acting on it. And then all of my viewers feel and sympathize for her exactly how she wants. And it's like my mom has taken the power back. Like my mom is in control of my project and how people feel about it. And and my I'm not any like what started as me viewing has the the role has shifted. And so a lot of times recently, if she starts really putting it on, I know to just stop, you know, I'll make one or two portraits and I'll say, mom, we're done today. She'll say, let's make more pictures. And I'm like, no mom, like I, I got what I needed. Um, and I'll kind of just wait for things to calm down and then I'll pull out the camera again. But honestly, I've been shooting a lot more with my iPhone mm-hmm. because that is not this big intrusive 5D that's in her face with long lenses. Um, and I'm interested in getting just a smaller mirrorless camera now that the technology is getting better because I do think um, there's something about that big camera in front of her in my tripod that makes her just light up. But then if it's the phone, it's it's different. Yeah. So, But I also think that's what's so great about like Instagram is that it can house all these different mediums of photography. It can be screenshots. It can be iPhone photos. It can be from a point and shoot. It can be from a 5D. And they can all harmoniously exist together in this digital gallery. So um, I'm not worried about switching camera formats, but I think that it's something I probably should do just for to keep things more fly-on-the-wall-esque.
If you want to do more with your photography than collecting images on your hard drive, I recommend attending a Momenta photographic workshop where you learn more than just how to make a pretty picture. Momenta teaches you how to tell stories with a camera while helping a nonprofit organization support and enrich your community. You learn to make photographs that make a difference while getting valuable feedback from experienced photojournalists and documentary photographers. I participated in an LA workshop recently and it was one of the most satisfying photographic experiences that I had all year. You learn how to make the most of a single photograph, as well as how to call and edit your shoot to those essential images that paint a complete picture of an organization and the work they're doing. It provides a wonderful challenge and experience, regardless of whether you're an enthusiast or a working professional. Momenta is celebrating its 10th year and has workshops scheduled throughout the United States and the world. Their next event is scheduled for Puerto Rico in September, and spots are still available. So check it out by visiting MomentoWorkshops.com. Your, your use of Instagram is really fascinating in terms of sharing these images. But before I get to that, yeah. you know, there's, a, there's a thing that happens when families have a person that's suffering from mental illness, and, that, and the immediate impulse is keep it a secret. Don't let anybody know. Don't say anything that's wrong with your spouse or your brother or your sister or your cousin. Shh, you know, you, we don't talk about about oh, this. Yeah. And here you are with a camera <laughs> documenting this and putting it out into to the world. Did you have to at some point deal with that tendency of families to want to keep it secret? Was that something that you had to overcome? So I, you know... I, I kind of feel like the whole project is this giant therapy session. But when I was a teenager, my mom would pick me up from middle school. She would crash into everything and hit everything. So our minivan had these like huge dents and scrapes and, and stuff all over that. Mm. And I remember kids being like, Melissa, why is your minivan so broken? Like, why don't you guys get that fixed? What's wrong with you guys? Blah, blah, blah. And I got in the car and I was like, hey, mom, do you think we could maybe get the the stuff, the paint cleaned off the minivan? And she like reamed me out. She's like, oh, are you embarrassed about me? And just like yelling Mm. and screaming. And that I feel like is so foreshadowing. Like by the time I got to the photos, like I was like, I don't care that there's marks on the minivan. I don't care that Mm. I'm the girl whose mom crashed into the gas station drunk that everybody saw. Like, I don't care that I'm that person anymore. Like I was just so frustrated of hiding it my whole life. And um, my parents had gone through a really bad divorce where my mom had made things very public and as in our group of friends, like Mm -hmm. it was almost like the dust had settled. Like it was, I, everyone in my family was like, if this is going to help you be a photographer and help you as a human, like my dad was like, my daughter's going to school and getting good grades and getting awards. And he was so, it just, it made everything in my life make sense all of a sudden. And so everyone's been really supportive. And even my grandfather, who is like the most pride driven man, sorry, there's an ambulance. He, you know, let me photograph him dying because he just, he was like, Melissa, I know that this is, this will help you. Like Mm. if it, if I can tell, if you can tell my story and it will help other people and it will help you, then tell it. And so I've always been really 
I'm really lucky that my family has been this supportive of me. Yeah. And you mentioned your mom's drinking, and, and that's one of the issues that, that people with mental illness have, that even after they're diagnosed, they may not be dutiful about taking whatever medication has been prescribed. And so they'll oftentimes self-medicate, especially mm-hmm. after they take the medication and they think that, yes. oh, I'm fine now. I don't need to take the medication. And then they start drinking or using pills or was that the scenario with your mom oh yeah I think it all what's really scary and sad for me so my mom always drank she was always the life of the party she was always the loud drunk blonde woman on the boat dock like dancing (laughs) and you know she's awesome but then there were just these little things but then it was really when she got diagnosed with cancer that's when it was Um. like okay so now we have heavy-duty prescription pills coming into the play. We have Valium. We have, like, just all of it. And it was like the cancer went away, but the pills didn't. I remember thinking that. Like, it was like the cancer stopped. Mom beat breast cancer. She went through all of this horrible stuff. But all of these heavy-duty drugs are still around. Mm. And now there's alcohol and cigarettes and... And it was just, and I think that that was kind of the beginning of the end. Like, and I hate, that's why I get so nervous about diagnosis. And that's why I kind of preach about this mass medicated society that we're living in. um, When there's a lot of herbal and natural and more holistic things to at least try, Mm -hmm. I think, in certain circumstances. So tell me about using Instagram to share the images. How did that come about? Like everything in my life, I remember being in graduate school and everybody was saying like, this Instagram thing, like this is not for fine art. And someone was like, did you hear they're teaching Instagram classes in New York now? Like people to post. And I was like, there was this conflict about whether Instagram was good or not for photographers. And I finished my MFA and I was living in Kansas City and I was photographing in Ferguson and I was using social media so much to, to find protests and meet up with people. And I started, I was just like thinking, I was like, I should just put my pictures online. Like I want to talk with people about this work, but I didn't want to flood my own personal Instagram with pictures of my mom. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to use, have separate things And I was also really frustrated then you could only post as squares. And I was like, I am not cropping my images. So I just (laughs) randomly on an iPad started a second account with my school email, even though I had just graduated. And I just started chopping up the images and posting them like that. And I remember I had to do a couple trials before I like figured out the system. And it just like snowballed. Like it just, I just wanted to put the work out there and the grids all of a sudden were really metaphorical for dealing with my mom. Like you have to, you have to zoom in and out of the account. You can't look at it mm-hmm. in one line or it doesn't make sense. You have to step back, view the v- bigger picture, and then you can dive in and get more detail. Um, but yeah, and then it just, I would just use hashtags and I kept it open and people slowly started commenting. I remember I went and I followed like all the people in the photo world that I loved, like Aperture and ICP. I I just knew I was like, I'm only going to stalk the people that I (laughs) like. I just, I don't know. I was like just trying things out. I was in Kansas city and had nothing going on and felt really kind of lost. And then it just started snowballing and I got more followers. And then I moved to New York and now it's like, 
And then people started commenting and sharing their stories. And that's when I just like, I still, I read some of my comments of the things that people share and I just like cry. Cause it's just, I think about being a kid and had I been able to get on this device when I was alone in my room and see that someone else was experiencing what I was experiencing, I would have, I don't think I would have maybe been so angry or wanted to lash out so much. I could have found some of these people online or talked with them or it's just, that's what I think about now. Like every time I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to share this again. I don't, I, cause it's emotionally tolling to just write some of the posts that I write. But then when I see what my followers say back, I'm like, okay, I'm doing this for somebody else. Like this is helping this girl who's alone or this guy whose mom or this and, and people's dads and everybody has a weird way of, of relating because we all know what it's like to love somebody who's got an issue. I think people who have had a taste of what it's like get it and, mm-hmm. and resonate with it. And people who haven't are usually quick to criticize it. Has that been mm-hmm. your, your experience? Yeah, totally. I think even in graduate school, I remember one girl said, well, all Melissa has to do is fly home and hang out with her mom. <clears throat> and I just remember being like, I wish that that's what it was like. Like, I wish that it was like flying. Like, and then I remember once on Facebook, someone wrote, this girl's getting rich off her mom. And I was wanting to write, like, I'm w- I wish I was rich. Like, what? Like, I have sticks on my wall as shelves. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like, I just think um, the Internet's a crazy place. But I am happy that I... You know, I don't have a huge following, but I have a decent following and I'm not putting up Kardashian selfies and I'm proud of that. I I want to populate the Internet with beautiful images that make people think and that get us away from the negative parts of social media and make fine art accessible to everybody. That's like the number one thing with Instagram, like my work has been in a museum, but you can see it all and even more of it on Instagram. So how like, did your mom respond to finding out that there was an audience for the work, not only on Instagram, but as you just said, in an exhibit, in a, in a gallery? Um, the first time I showed her a portfolio, she flipped out like she was. And that was when I was in graduate school. I had been making the work for four or five years at that point, And mm. she still... She just said, how could you show me this way? How could you make me look like this? And I said, mom, it's a camera. Like it doesn't, I'm not making you look anyway. Like this is the reality of where, of where your life is at. And then she called me back and she said, I'm so sorry. That freaked me out. Mm -hmm. And now she's just like, I'm the crazy famous, I'm a famous crazy lady. (laughs) Can I, (laughs) and, but it makes her feel important. She tells me all the time. She's like, my life, I would have never felt this important or this loved. And I, I did, I FaceTimed her from my exhibition and I walked around and I just was like, I want you to know that this is a painful story, but it comes from that. I just love you so much, mom, like that. I, and it's true. It's, it's very sad, but at the end of the day, like I'm still that kid just trying to make it better for my mom and tell her that it's okay. Mm. And that I love her and she's important and that her life is valuable. And, and I think, by making this photo project in some way I've showed her that. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's the project 
And also, I think getting older has probably helped your relationship with your mother because, at least in my experience, it's the more that I understand in terms of what's happening, I, I recognize they aren't doing this to me. This yeah. is just something that's happening to them. And sometimes I'm just in the debris field. Yes. And so it helps not to take it personally, though sometimes it can be very difficult to oh, yeah. to do that. It's, and I think that's where I've used the Instagram. It's crazy so much. Like my followers who have said, I quit talking to my mom five years ago and my life is so much better. Like, and I'm not at that yeah. point yet. My mom and I are, are speaking, but just to know that there's other women out there and other children that have cut ties. Like I haven't talked to my father and blah, 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 in so many years. Like it just helps to know that there's other people out there who don't have these super conventional relationships with their parents and that they're okay. And that like, if I did quit talking to my mom, I could find followers of mine that would support me in that and not think that I'm being selfish and understand it. Like you said, mm. the people who get it, that you have to protect yourself. I keep thinking that I've been flying a lot and they always say, you know, put your mask on First. before you help someone else. Mm -hmm. And like, if I seem cold to my mom, I have to just tell myself like, no, because the guilt when you grow up with someone like this, you just feel guilty constantly. Did I not do enough? What could I have done better? It, it, did I, that was bad. I shouldn't have said that. I need to call and apologize. Like I'm entitled to just feel it all. And I need to put my own mask on and I need to step back and just chill sometimes. But I talked to my mom this morning and we had a great conversation. We're going to hopefully go on a trip soon and make new pictures. So mm. that's exciting. So what was the response of your family members, particularly your father and your brother to the work? My brother's famous quote is, I don't want to be a part of your art project. And I joke with him that I'm going to make a new project of portraits of him putting his hand up in front of my camera <laughs> saying, I don't want to be a part of your art project. So that's pretty much, he thinks it's good for me and he thinks it's good. You know, he, we have big dreams and we hope that, you know, we could potentially work with a lobbyist or somebody and try and get laws changed or things set up for children or a nonprofit. You know, we, we just talk and bounce a lot of things like that around. So he feels really good about it, but he just wants nothing to do with it. Mm. My dad, um, he just says it's bizarre. He just says, <laughs> he says he's very proud of me and he's glad. He just, he always says, I never thought it would resonate with people that it has. And it's amazing that it has. And, you know, he also, he, my dad's an expat and lives abroad. So a lot of the men that he meets are also divorcees who are living abroad mm. and, They'll say, like, my ex-wife is crazy. And my dad's like, no, no, let me tell you about my daughter. <laughs> Pull up my work, which is, I maybe shouldn't laugh about that. But it's, I'm glad that he, I feel like it validated a lot of things that he went through. Because, you know, there's, there's a stigma about leaving and walking away. Mm, and that you didn't yeah. try enough. And you didn't take care of this person enough. And I think my dad did everything he could have done for my mom and I I um I love my dad I know my dad loved my mom so I just that's one thing he I think feels validated a little bit and that like this happened but there were extenuate like there were circumstances that that could not be avoided yeah photographers are often very protective of their work 
But when it's something this personal, I can imagine that it's magnified even more. So there's been a lot of interest in the work. You were uh, you were uh, given Instagram Photographer of the Year by Time Magazine 2017, which is a mm-hmm. great, great honor. But in terms of you know uh, finding outlets for the work, what are your so, some of your concerns in terms of how the, the material is used, distributed, shared? Um, so I'm pretty, I'm kind of a bulldog. I had a wonder, I worked for Jillian Laub for two years, who is an amazing photographer and my mentor. And Jillian, um, really taught me about keeping the work close and not just giving it away Mm -hmm. and making sure people pay me and, and that you respect the publications that you're working with. And I think a good example, WebMD offered to do something with my mom and I, and they wanted my mom to be like the face of bipolar. And if, you know, Uh. it's just like, I can't, I, you just have to know, I feel like, and, and especially for young photographers, the first, um, publication that ever offered me an article was Cosmopolitan. And I think when you're a young girl from Missouri and Cosmo emails you, you're like, Oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. Cosmo. And I I remember I was like that. Oh my gosh, Cosmo. And then I went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, I did not get my MFA and photography to have these pictures in Cosmopolitan, like these pictures. And I, and I turned them down in that moment was it was Mm. really scary to turn down this map but I think it's it's just about knowing when to wait and just keep the work as close as possible until you are confident with the people that you meet that want to publish it I was so lucky that I met um Paul Moakley and Kira Pollock from Time Magazine and I call them my photo family now like I just think that finding that relationship with a publication and I was just so lucky for it to be an iconic one like time for me and I could always go in and out of the offices and just say hey I have new images do you guys want to see them um but waiting out it was really hard and very scary because yeah I don't want my pictures in Cosmo or on WebMD I I just don't well you've been living in New York for the last three years trying to create a career as as a photographer why move to New York? I know it's it's sort of a, a redundant question to ask, but yeah. nevertheless, it's an important question to ask. Why yeah. go to New York, and how has it been for you? Um, so moving to New York as a young photographer is really scary, but it's also been incredibly rewarding. Like I said, I, I get to go to Time Magazine and go to these publications and meet editors and really important people in my field. Not to mention the shows and the exhibitions. I remember the going to, I got a MoMA membership and just walking around MoMA and you're like, oh my gosh, like these are the real celebrities in New York. Like these pieces and are just, everything's oozing inspiration, I feel like, which has been great. And then I was able to meet Jillian Laub, who's a, like I said, fantastic photographer and be her assistant, which is another thing that like you just can't do or find if you aren't in these hubs of fine art and photography and it's just been great from there on I've just I now Jillian and I um, don't work together anymore but we're very close and spend lots of time together and I'm able to freelance and I've just kind of by word of mouth started meeting clients and I tutor women in photoshop and give them advice on their projects and what they're working on I 
Um, I'm looking to volunteer at ICP to do a teaching assistantship there and trying to get into the world of educating and put my MFA to use. But right now it's just, it's been great. I feel so blessed and lucky to have found myself in the circle of women that are all photo related that I have. It's just, it's pretty incredible. And with the, um, the work that you've been getting at large, I would assume that some of it has been propelled by the attention that you've gotten for, for this. So what kind of assignments has that, that led to? So that's the thing. I'm not really doing assignments right now. Oh, okay. So if anyone listening wants to give me an assignment, that would be great. I've been applying to a lot of grants okay, and um, trying to just, you know, make some just really stellar, amazing portraits in this you know, last year before it's a decade of documentation. And then I would like to, you know, go back to the drawing board again and say, I've been documenting my mom for 10 years and try and really start getting a book put together with somebody. So right now I'm just, you know, I would love to be making new work. I, but I think I need to like really still kind of pick apart this stuff. And I have other projects in my back pocket that I just haven't really... I just haven't gotten the ball rolling yet. Um, But more family stuff. I'm just so interested in our family stories and how they shape us and artifacts and where those things can take us. So, Well, it's exciting stuff. I I wish you the best with all that. Well, thank you. Yeah. So my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired. Oh, my gosh. Or someone you've recently discovered. Perfect person. Okay. So, and I want to tell the story because I think it's amazing too. So Gabby Perez Silver, Gabby Perez Silver had this this piece come out in Vice um, called Last Days with My Father. And I saw this work of her documenting her bipolar father in Puerto Rico and yeah, his last days. Yeah, I reached days. out to Gabby, so hopefully I'll have a chance to talk with her before the year's out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I see this work and I'm just like, brought to tears so I get on nothing to worry about my Instagram and I go to her Instagram and I see that she's following me already I got really excited so then I DM'd her and I was like congratulations but I know how weird it is to be congratulated for things that aren't like I was we just had this like moment together and we met last like two days ago in New York and just like laid in the park and talked about gut-wrenching stuff and photography and just everything and Gabby's fabulous and I I want to name drop her and especially because we met through making work and we're two girls from Missouri and Puerto Rico and we found each other via photography and it's just I think it's amazing and she's an amazing photographer yeah yeah she is yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing time with oh us. Oh my it was gosh, a real thank pleasure. you so much. This is amazing. If you have a family member or friend that is suffering from mental illness, you can find help through NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They can provide you resources and workshops to help not only your loved one, but yourself and your family. Visit NAMI.org, spelled N-A-M-I, or call 1-800-950-NAMI. Thanks to Melissa for spending time with us. To find out more about her and her work, visit melissaspitz.com. <laughs>
And if you're a fan of The Candid Frame, take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps our ranking, but it also creates awareness of the show. I've been surprised on many occasions when a famous photographer I've invited as a guest has already known about the show, making it all the easier to land the interview. Though it only takes a few minutes, you'll be making a huge difference. Take the time to do it today. Thanks to Johan F. from the Netherlands for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you help us to meet the cost of production, as well as help us to bring these episodes to you every week. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution, you can do so via PayPal. It's your support that allows us to bring you conversations that you won't hear anywhere else every week. Do it today. It was your support that allowed us to create the free Candid Frame app that provides the easiest way to access every episode of the Candid Frame. Available for both Apple iOS and Android, you automatically receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet. But you can easily search for episodes based on a name or keyword and save your favorite episode for repeated listening. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. And this is X, and this is The Candid Frame.